This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this special live episode was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and produced on the lands of the Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of their lands. And we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within that hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. And there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit. As if this flesh which walls our life were brass impregnable, and humoured thus, comes at the last, and with a little pin bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king. Cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence. Throw away respect, tradition, form, and ceremonious duty. For you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was King Richard II from Act 3, Scene 2 of Richard II, read by our guest this week. He is chairman of the board of one of Australia's largest companies, West Farmers Limited. He also heads the National School Resourcing Board and is a director of the Centre for Independent Studies. He's a former chairman of the National Australia Bank and of Woodside Petroleum, a former director of BHP and the previous chancellor of the University of Western Australia. In 2004, he was appointed an officer in the Order of Australia for services to business and the community. It is my great pleasure to welcome Michael Cheney. Michael, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you very much, James. Well, pleasure, pleasure to be here. It, it, is, it is great to be here. And tonight we're recording in front of a live audience, Michael, at the State Buildings in Perth. They let me in to WA this morning, earlier uh, today. I promise that I'm fully vaccinated. But um, anyway, they did, uh, they did actually um, let me in. And it's great to be here in the city where I grew up, where I went to school, uh, where I went to, to university and, and where you did as well, Michael. Yeah, where you did that's as well. Right. Now, Michael, tell me, Richard II, why this character? Well, I chose that passage because um, for a few reasons. Firstly, it reminded me of George Bernard Shaw's statement. Yeah. Kings are not born, they're made by artificial hallucination. Yes, great. <laughs> and it, I think, uh, is an interesting reflection on leadership, mm. which we can talk about. But I chose it because uh, I studied Richard II in year 12. This was in English literature. Yeah. And I got up into the high part of one of our bookcases at home and I actually found my textbook. The, the same one from year 12? This is it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, and I'll prove it to you because uh -huh. 
Uh, this was purchased by me in January 1967. And you recall that decimal currency came in in February 1966. Right, right. And when I opened this, I found up here, stamped in ink, dollars 01.10. Mm -hmm. And then because the customers probably were still a bit confused then, <laughs> they wrote underneath it 11 shillings and then under that 110 cents. Yeah, <laughs> just to be clear how much it was. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, as I said, I think that passage is a very interesting reflection on leadership mm, um, mm, and mm. on the hollow crown, as, yeah. as he says. Well, it's interesting, Richard II, because just moments before this, he says, not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king. He, he thinks that he is untouchable as king. Then he hears that Bolingbroke has landed on the beach and he says, well, that's it. I'm just human. It's a hollow crown. No, none of it means anything. What kind of a leader is this? Well, before, just before what you described, he also talked about the um, importance of the name. Mm -hmm the name king and the crown. And once you've got the name and you've got the crown, you've got authority. Right. And it's the position that gives you authority and it makes you above all the people below you. And that was one of his problems. Mm. He was very arrogant, yep. uh, but he also had some essential flaws, I think. And mm. I think it's true that the name, if you're chairman or chief executive, it does actually give you authority. Yeah. But unless you live up to it, you end up losing it. And right. that's what happened to Richard II. Mm. He was indecisive in, for example, not deciding early enough whether Bolingbroke and, and um, Mowbray would have a duel yes. right up until the last moment. Mm -hmm. He was then, he, he vacillated about that. He was then uh, uh, he, he had a very strange approach in calling off the duel and saying to Mowbray, you're exiled for life, yep. Bolingbroke, you're exiled for 10 years, mm -hmm. and then was persuaded that wasn't such a good idea, so he, Bolingbroke, sorry, it's six years. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to be no rationale at all about that. And so that sort of indecisiveness, I think. And inconsistency. And inconsistency. Yep. Arbitrariness mm -hmm. was, uh, well, Mowbray said at the time, this, these sort of faults are going to be a downfall, and eventually they were. So look, if anyone can understand the position of leader, I think it's you, because you've been chairman of a number of companies. I mean, for goodness sake, you were chairman of the National Australia Bank during the financial crisis in 2007 8 uh, leading a company during a crisis. Is it lonely at the top? Well, I think that's an interesting question. It goes to the point of, of uh, the power of the position. Uh, I was, before I was promoted to managing director at West Farmers, I was one of the executive committee reporting to Trevor Eastwood. And I noticed when I became chief executive, almost on the day, mm -hmm. a, a sort of gap opened up where people who, my peers who used to say, come down the pub for a beer, stopped doing it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a bit strange, you know, they're still good friends and so on. Mm. But that's what happens actually with the power of a position. Mm. People uh, defer to you more than you ever expected. Mm. And um, loneliness at the top is sort of the extension of that. Yeah. And I wouldn't overemphasize it. I had a fantastic team and we 
the, to this day are very good friends. Mm. But I did notice that instant separation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine as long as uh, in due course you live out the promise, yes. really. Yeah. And what's the promise? Well, it's really, I think, being consistent, mm-hmm. um, having a, a vision of some sort and motivating people to march towards it, but being consistent in your messaging, not having a huge ego, yeah. understanding that uh, everyone has something to contribute, not trying to be the smartest person in the room and mm. so on. Mm. And mm. as I say, I think that was Richard's downfall. You know, it's interesting, Henry V, um, who is king, a couple of kings after Richard II, uh, has this great speech at the end of that play, Henry V, uh, where he says, upon the king, and he talks about the burdens of leadership all on his shoulders and that everybody can sleep peacefully at night, uh, but he's the one who has to, to be awake and worrying about the, the problems <laughs> of the country. Is that true? You, you're, you're laughing. Is that true? To well, it is. I, I yeah? think it is, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, eventually the buck stops at the top. That's right. And Henry mm. V, I think, was the son of Henry IV, yes. who was Bolingbroke. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bolingbroke was more of a man of the people, but Henry V far more so, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. embraced people and yep. brought them along board, uh, on board. Yep. Nevertheless, he was still left with all the problems at night. Exactly, exactly. So looking back at this speech, Michael, uh, I mean, it's such a famous speech, the Hollow Crown speech. It's all about a, a leader looking at the trappings of leadership and saying, well, what does it all mean? It, it, it doesn't really mean anything. At the end of the day, I'm just a human being like, like you. And I just want to look at these last four lines because this is really interesting. I love when Shakespeare does this. There are 33 words in these last four lines and 31 of them are monosyllables, are single syllable words. And for me as a, as a director, when I'm talking to an actor about a, a piece like this, when Shakespeare goes monosyllabic, and it happens a few times, I feel like the pace slows down. The thoughts become more simple, more deliberate, more clear or something. I wonder, can we just, just let's hear those last four lines one more time from For You Have But Mistook Me. 31 out of 33 words, just one syllable, and just really take your time with it and, and share those thoughts with us very simply. For you have mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Yeah, beautiful. And maybe, you know, admitting that you're actually a common person Mm -hmm. like everyone else. The monosyllabic words mm. reinforce it. Yeah, it but is. it's far less sophisticated. It's yes. not poetry. Mm, mm. Um, it's very straightforward. I, I should say, the other reason I chose this is mm. that at school I was president of the drama society <laughs> right. in, in year twelve, <laughs> and I cringe now um, <laughs> that at one of the uh, I don't, don't think it was speech night, but one of the performances. I mounted a rendition of part of this in which two of us stood, I guess we were um, Mowbray and Bolingbroke, and we were dressed in black and I directed it. I'll stand here like a statue and you stand there like a statue (laughs) and we will deliver our words 
to the audience Amazing. like that. And I thought it was really cool. <laughs> Very uh, avant-garde. This, this, this is amazing. But it would have been excruciating. <laughs> really. Was it the whole play like that or just no, a couple no, of scenes? No, no, it was so, bless, blessedly, it was only a small part of it. <laughs> okay. Maybe it was a whole scene. I don't know. Amazing. Fantastic. So, so, so what happened next? You didn't continue your, your Shakespeare acting career after that? Well, not in Shakespeare. I did. I did act in quite a few plays at school. For example, in Oliver, I was Beth. Mm. Um, <laughs> I had a light lemon yellow dress. Wow. Wow. Uh, I was in year 10. I was only about five foot two then. <laughs> I grew fast at the end. And my father was the guest speaker at speech night. And uh, <laughs> after the performance, nuns came up to him and said, Mr. Cheney, Michael makes such a lovely girl. <laughs> um, and then I was Will Parker in Oklahoma. Um, yeah. I have to tell you, and I, I don't want to blow my trumpet here, but yes. <laughs> I ran into a guy only last week who turned out to have gone to Aquinas as well. Right, right. And he was at another school and his mother wanted to send him to Aquinas in year 10 and didn't, didn't want to go. And he said, so she took me along to speech night mm to show me what Aquinas was doing. And he said, I saw you in Oklahoma. Wow. And I decided I had to go. You're oh. kidding. He remembered it all these years. <laughs> anyway, that was the end of my <laughs> thespian career. Um, I, and I often wondered whether they gave us this text because the government wanted an emphasis on STEM. Yes. Back in the late 60s, the mining boom because in a survey of the most popular plays, Shakespeare plays, <laughs> yep. Richard II ranks 37th out of 37. <laughs> and once you've studied this and written about it, you don't want to do Shakespeare for a while. Uh, <laughs> yes, although you do love Richard II, you love the play, it's got some amazing language in it, but uh, I can see your point, certainly. And I mean, th this is a big point that I talk about with a number of actors and, and with school teachers as well. It's all about how the teacher teaches the play as yeah. well is it just done in a kind of dull way a heavy way that just weighs down on the kids or is it brought to life by the teacher it makes all the difference it does make a difference and i've got to say we had a teacher of this called max mccappian brother mccappian who's mm. uh still around and i've had the odd reunion with him a fantastic guy mm. and he was he was you know very big on drama but i uh, really forgot about Shakespeare, frankly, until 1994, mm. when Bell came here the first time. Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, John Bell was here with Anna, and and they uh, produced Macbeth, mm. and Christopher Stollery and Essie Davis were here in Taming of the Shrew. The Shrew, that's right. Yeah. And we sponsored it, and I was absolutely staggered at what I saw or what I heard, mm -hmm. and that was the delivery of this poetry mm. and these lines in a way that sounded like contemporary vernacular. Yes. Yep. It was absolutely fantastic. And yep. I found it hard to believe they were actually delivering what Shakespeare wrote because it sounded so like the way we speak. Yeah. And yep. that, that was what was brilliant about it. And I think revolutionary in, in John's case. Mm. And then 
well, they came back in 1998 and we then became a mm. uh, travelling partner for, for, for Bell. So, 94, so that's the first time you met John Bell in 1994. Yeah. Yeah. And then four years later, West Farmers becomes the, uh, um, the, the Perth the season touring partner, partner, touring yeah. partner for Bell Shakespeare. And that, I should say that partnership has lasted 23 years unbroken. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's, it's Bell Shakespeare's longest, um, longest partnership by far, I think, uh, with any company. So why was that important for West Farmers to, to get behind Bell Shakespeare and then, and then stick with it? Well, it was part of a, a broader plan, really, at the time. We, from the late 70s, West Farmers started developing an art collection. Yeah. John Benison was the CEO, and that has now grown to be one of Australia's great corporate art collections. But um, in the 90s, we started sponsoring uh, all the uh, major arts companies. So here in the West, we became the major sponsor of, of the symphony orchestra mm -hmm. and of Black Swan and of the opera yep. and, and so on. And we sponsored touring companies like Bell, yep. the ACO, Music of Eva. Mm. And in, I think it was 1998, we formed a brand called West Farmers Arts mm -hmm. to basically expand what we were doing and mm. become a major arts supporter. Yeah. And that as the time, as you said, that we formed that formal partnership mm. with Bell. Mm. It's been a fantastic thing for us, I think. Now, if you think of why companies do that, yeah. the duty of directors is to the company under the law. You know, the Chief Justice will assure us here mm. that the, the, the directors have a clear duty to the company's sure. interests. Okay. And we came to the view early on that if we were seen as a good corporate citizen, it would benefit the company. There was a win-win situation. Right. And so we became a major supporter of all sorts of causes, mm -hmm. not just in the arts, but in um, med medicine, community mm -hmm. causes, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, in a survey, for example, done two years ago, the ASX 50, the top 50 companies in the stock exchange mm -hmm. uh, on philanthropy as a proportion of profit. West Farmers is on top by a mile mm. and about four times the average. Mm. And, you know, there's been a fair bit of talk about uh, companies being, purpose being for stakeholders versus traditionally shareholders. There is no conflict here right. unless you're looking after the interest of all stakeholders, and that means community. Yes across the board, mm. you're never going to achieve good shareholder returns. And so we've mm. always felt those things go hand in hand mm. and the company, it turns out, has performed very well financially. Mm. I don't think it's a coincidence that we've been a good corporate citizen. Mm. And, and it's, it's just been a fantastic journey for us. And having an association with Bell has been really rewarding. Mm. You know, we've had, um, of course, exposing our people, our employees to Bell by yep. allowing to, to pro providing tickets for them. But also we've had directors and actors come to the office and mm. talk to people. Um, we, we supported uh, Yuri Arkin along yeah. with Bell in, mm. in the Hecate production yep. last mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago now. Yeah. And it's been, I think, really rewarding for everyone in the company as mm. well as for people outside. Well, look, I think this is a great way that business can uh, give back into the community and support the community. And just on Hecate, um, I should mention that last night was the Performing Arts WA Awards 
and that production won nine awards in, in that awards ceremony. Mm. Uh, and um, I suppose that wouldn't that wouldn't be possible. Productions like that wouldn't be possible without support from from business as well as uh, private uh, philanthropy and and uh, government support as well. But but why why business and the arts? What, why do you think? that is actually a, an important thing going forward. Because I know, talking to our head of development, um, uh, Deb Reinecke, she tells me that corporate support for the arts is actually dropping as a, as a percentage of annual turnover. Uh, it's harder and harder to find that. So, yeah. so what would you say to businesses about why they should support the arts? Well, uh, firstly, I think what I said earlier was that Providing support to community causes generally is an important thing for business to do. It's really a responsibility, I think. And it, business is rewarded in, uh, in turn. But the arts, I think, is a particularly useful uh, thing for a business to support. All the time in business, we're talking about the need for innovation yes. and creativity. Yes. And I've always reckoned there's no sector that's more creative and innovative than the arts. Sure. Uh, the performing arts, the visual arts, and so on. And I think we've benefited hugely from having our people in the company exposed to right. creativity yeah. mm -hmm. uh, as they have been. Mm. Um, but it's a huge challenge. I mean, one of the yeah. challenges these days is there are so many causes out there. Yeah, and right. you'll find particular businesses decide this is an area we want to support, mm -hmm. and, and others you know, decide there's another area. But mm. um, I think there's been a greater recognition, certainly in recent years, mm. of the need uh, for good corporate citizenship yes. and stakeholder care, if mm. you like. Yeah. And, and that ought to actually be causing the reverse of what you described. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you found private philanthropies increased as corporate as... Yes, produced? and that is actually what's happening. Um, but... It hasn't yet made up that that shortfall, you yeah. know. And I do want to talk to you a bit about the difference between Australian and US and UK culture around giving um, in the arts, because I know that there are differences there as well. And uh, w when you go to the US, private philanthropy is absolutely everywhere. Yeah. But we haven't yet built that culture properly here. What, what, what's, well, what, how does that work? There are two things I'd like to say in that regard. Mm -hmm. One is I once uh, looked at uh, New York, London and Australia yep. at the proportion of funding that large arts companies got from government versus private. Right. And it was 90, if you look at private government, mm -hmm. in the US it was 90-10. Sure, yeah. In the UK, it was 1090 mm. approximately. In Australia, it was 50-50. Right. Mm. And it raises interesting questions about what happens if you get more government support or what happens if you get less. Yeah. yeah. In the US, there's a culture of private philanthropy. Yes, very much so. In the UK, there's historically been more of a culture of government supporting yeah. the arts, mm -hmm. in, in which case I think the private sector hasn't stepped up as much. Right. In the US, um, I, I once looked at um, the Internal Revenue Service statistics and the Australian Tax Office statistics at yeah. donations per head. Yes. Deductions claim, tax deductions claim for donations. And I found that 
the, uh, that American individuals are a hundred times more generous than Australians wow. yeah. in private philanthropy. Mm. A, a staggering figure. Uh, even if it's only half that, it's a staggering figure. And I've got friends there uh, that when I talk to them, uh, we say, you know, we went to the Metropolitan Museum. Oh, yes, well, they're on our list of family uh, recipients mm -hmm. of our philanthropy. Yeah. And these aren't very wealthy people. They're just professional people who said, you know, we're going to give away a certain amount and let's work out who gets it and so on. So it's just part of life, give, part of giving life. to the arts. In Australia, it's life. much yeah. more reactive where mm. somebody approaches you, yes, okay, I'll, uh, mm -hmm. I'll make a donation. <laughs> um, so, so how <laughs> well, do we... maybe it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we change that culture? Because, and I was uh, speaking to someone um, who works at the Public Theatre in New York and they're saying it's almost an embarrassment of riches when they want to put on a production. They just reach out to one of their donors, they write them a quarter of a million dollar check and they can put on a show. How, yeah. how do we uh, foster that culture of individual philanthropy here in Australia? I, th I think it's, it's leading by example. And, yes. Um, John Poynton and I once went to see a wealthy person who I mm. won't name, who was making anonymous donations oh, to yeah. causes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we said to him, you should be much more public about mm -hmm. this because if people see you doing it, they'll follow. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it actually happened. Eventually yeah. that person was much more public in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a gradual process. And, and it's just that in Australia, it hasn't been a tradition. Yes. I think more and more, if there's publicity about what people are doing, mm -hmm. and you, you see this now, you read about people in the newspaper doing good things and, yeah. and others will follow. Yeah. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today, Michael Cheney. Now, Michael, do you remember when you first encountered Shakespeare? Was it before that uh, um, production in, in year 12 when you, when you stepped on stage and played Bolingbroke? Well, it would have been because my brother Richard, who's two years older, mm -hmm. was um, very active in drama at school. Yep. And, and I don't recall what productions I saw him in, but there would have been a number of uh, Shakespeare plays that he mm -hmm. performed in. Yeah. Aquinas was very active in that space, in the drama society yes. and putting on productions during the year. Mm -hmm. So I did, I was exposed to it from an early age. Really. Was it taught well? What's that? Was it taught well at Aquinas? Yeah, as I say, Brother McCapian, yes. uh, I think, was a really good teacher mm. Um, mm. and uh, very devoted to, the, to English literature and, yeah. and Shakespeare in particular. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Look, uh, when you were growing up, obviously a high-flying family, you know, your, your dad's a, a Fred minister in the Menzies government, um, what was that conversation like around around the dinner table? Was there much uh, in terms of the arts and, and culture ar around the around the dinner table? No, not really. No. There was much more about East Perth yeah. football club. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Um, and it's fair to say, Dad wasn't uh, a great aficionado of sure. the arts. Sure, sure. Uh, my mother was. Mm. She uh, uh, was. She actually taught speech, but she was an amateur actor. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. At a younger age. And you saw her in married. productions? You saw no, her in no, shows? No, I was not born in those <laughs> days. Uh, by then, she'd had seven children, so she didn't have a lot of time sure. for acting. No doubt. At least no doubt. on stage. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So there, there was a lot of there, there was a culture of service in your family, though, as well. There most was certainly, yeah. uh, yeah. and um, a real uh, feeling of duty of public service. Is that where you got your you th- you you believe you got your um, feeling for philanthropy and and uh, well, I giving? Think, I think it was. Yeah, nothing was ever said about mm-hmm. it. It was just an expectation. Yeah. And, you know, my uh, oldest brother, Fred, um, really has had a life of service in, mm. in various ways, in politics, Indigenous affairs and yes. so on. Yep. And uh, I've got three sisters and three brothers, and all of them have been heavily involved in volunteering and community service in some mm. way. Yeah. But no one ever said to us, this is what you should be doing. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, Dad was in Parliament, as you say, and, and eventually Lord Mayor as well. Mm. And it was just sort of what you did. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So after school, you went to UWA. Yeah. You studied uh, your first undergraduate degree at the University of Western Australia. Years later, you came back and were the Chancellor of the whole university. What does it feel like to, to be, become the Chancellor of the place where you were an undergrad uh, running around, mucking around? Well, it was, it was a great honour, actually, a great honour. Mm. And um, not to be too flippant about it, there was one experience that uh, really struck a chord. Mm. Uh, when I started in my undergraduate degree, I studied geology, and in first year, I'd done very well at school, and so I... I coasted through first year without doing any work and I did four (laughs) units in science. I got three C's and one conditional pass in physics. (laughs) And the conditional pass meant if you promise never to come back through these doors, (laughs) um, you don't have to do a sup. So I I accepted the offer (laughs) and I didn't do physics. And the next time I literally went through those doors, I was escorting the Duke of Edinburgh's <laughs> Chancellor. <laughs> very satisfying. Very sweet. <laughs> very good. Um, so in between those times when you were a student and when you were Chancellor, I was there as an undergraduate um, at the University of WA in the 90s, and I studied theatre there. And I had an amazing time. We had an extraordinary theatre studies course there. I learned with um, some great practitioners like Steve Chenna and Colin O'Brien and some technical professionals as well, like John Doyle and Anne Herder, who, uh, who taught us about you know, being backstage in the theatre and doing lighting and sound and, and, and everything about it. Um, but I'm sad to say that theatre studies doesn't exist at UWA anymore. It's, uh, it, it wound up a while ago and, and it's no longer an option. And I've, I'm, I'm concerned, Michael, about universities at the moment. I'm concerned that they are trending towards becoming technical institutes rather than seats of critical thought of learning how to become the next generation of leaders. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I have to say I, I could only agree. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there's been uh, an emphasis on uh, work-ready education. Yes. Uh, There's been an emphasis on, um, you know, uh, getting involved in the workforce while you're studying and so on and doing practical units Mm. Uh, and, and in terms of research, doing research that has identifiable outcomes and so on. Mm. The uh, move away from fundamental research, from basic research, I think is a real problem because uh, it's from those 
basic research projects that mm. unexpected things happen and, yeah. and new things are created. Yeah. Um, and in terms of work-ready graduates, mm. I mean, I think it's, it'd be, it, it, it is far better if you have a graduate who's equipped with critical thinking and a breadth of uh, intellectual yeah. knowledge and mm -hmm. discourse and so on. Yeah. Uh, because in the end, you, you learn what to do at work when you start working. Sure, sure. I mean, even I think in the days when it was more rigorous than it is today, mm. intellectually, um, when you got out, you realised, gosh, I've only sort of scratched the surface yeah. in this subject, whether it's in my case, geology, mm -hmm. and you learn on the job. Yes. And I think the, the most important thing is to get a really uh, solid grounding mm. in the fundamentals and mm. being able to sit and debate and talk about issues mm -hmm. and hear disagreements. And, mm. and there has been a very sad move, I think, in universities to stifle debate. Yeah particularly uh, if it's not uh, in fashion at the sure, moment. Sure, sure, yeah. And mm -hmm. it's a very unhealthy trend, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. And, um, and you know, obviously the government announced last year that certain fees would change for different courses and that the humanities, the fees would go up. Um, is, that, is that set in stone? Is that definitely happening? Well, I think that's the plan. I'm not sure if it's been... Uh, in place, I think it might have this year actually, but it never made any sense to me. Yeah. The, um, if an arts degree costs more than a science degree, I don't mm. think it's going to influence anyone's choice. Mm. I don't remember talking to a year 12 student whose decision about what course to take was based on the fee level. Right, right. It's what they think they're interested in sure. at the time. Yeah. But perversely, it costs a heck of a lot less to run an arts course than it does yeah. an engineering yeah. or science course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for the university, uh, it's far more attractive mm. to get people into arts, you get a higher fee and a lower cost. Okay. Well, the government's intention apparently was to try and attract people into the STEM yeah, that's courses. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it'll make any difference, mm. but you know, it burdens mm. arts graduates with higher Mm. hex debt yeah. and as we know arts graduates on the whole end up earning less yes. and it's to mm. me it was a it was a very poor decision so um i understand that you're uh working uh, on a committee um with the minister on uh, on higher education is that right are these no, issues it's on coming up school oh it's on schools it's okay. on school funding yeah. actually okay. it's called the national schools resourcing board the resourcing yeah. board that's right yeah. so yeah, do, do the issues come up around school kids getting ready for university and that transition? Uh, not really. This body is really about funding and it's about making sure that post-Gonski there's a formula for how schools are funded in yes. Australia by state and federal government. Right. And it's about making sure that the way they're funded is uh, appropriate and also that mm. the funds are used in the way that the legislation intends them to be used. Sure. That's a very brief description of what I could spend a few hours talking to no you doubt, about. No doubt. It is the most complex thing I've ever dealt with. Actually. Oh wow! Really? School funding? Yeah. yeah. Look, one of the big one of the big uh, questions we we we're constantly asked is, what's the point of teaching kids Shakespeare? Uh, Shakespeare has been on the curriculum for many years, and you know, do kids really need this stuff? Um, look, what my answer to that is. 
that Shakespeare opens up more questions than he answers, and therefore it allows kids to use their faculties of critical thought. It asks them questions about their world, about what kind of world they want to live in and who they want to be. And, uh, but, but it's hard to measure that. Is, is there a problem with people seeing things that are difficult to measure, and if, if they're hard to measure, then just chuck them out and get something you can measure? Well, I think that's one of the problems. Um, it is hard to measure, and people want measurement. And mm. It goes back to this question of what, what's really worth studying. And yeah. I think the benefit of studying Shakespeare is that it's not easy yeah. and you have to think about it and yes. interpret it and so on. Mm. Um, but uh, also this whole, uh, the way people get into universities with ATAR scores yeah. and so on mm. Uh, mm. causes people to do subjects where they can get a higher mark. Yeah, yeah. And if you're doing a English literature uh, or whatever it's called today and it's Shakespeare, it may be much harder to get a high uh, ATAR score than if you're doing a general mathematics course. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is, that's a problem. Now, some of the universities are now taking account of that mm. and there's always been a waiting uh, that the universities are given for yeah, harder subjects. Sure. Mm -hmm. But the the real risk is you end up with a dumbing down yeah. in the system, mm, and I, mm. you know, lamentably we've seen a decline in literacy and numeracy yes. in our school results over the last couple of decades, which is I think a national crisis actually. No doubt, no doubt. Michael Cheney, it's been really great talking to you today. It's been really great. But before we go, we have one final segment called the Final Five. I got five quick questions for you. Uh, five answers. Here we go. Number one. In Shakespeare, Michael, do you prefer the lover, the villain, or the fool? Uh, the fool. The fool. <laughs> Why the fool? Well, Why the because fool? I, I reckon the play, the humorous plays mm. um, are, are fantastic. You know, if, well, comedy of errors may be a bit too slapstick, but... <laughs> You know, if you think of Twelfth Night and mm. A Midsummer Night's Dream yeah. or Much Ado About Much Ado. Nothing, mm. uh, the, the, the word play uh, yeah. and the messing around and mm. the humour in there I think is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know what I really love about The Fool is that they, they speak, they're, they're the only ones who are allowed to speak truth to the, to the leaders. You know, the leaders uh, have a lot of yes men all around them, yeah. but the fool is the one who's allowed to say, no, no, you're being a fool, yeah. and, and I love that. <laughs> uh, Michael, what's your, your most underrated Shakespeare play? Uh, Richard II. Okay. <laughs> um, now, I happen to have looked at all of Bell's productions yes. over the last uh, yeah. 27 years, right. and this is not in it. You're right, yes. Uh, Bell has never produced Richard II, <laughs> and I reckon you should because there are some real lessons here in leadership yes, uh, and in the way the world works with mm -hmm. conflict and, and so on. Mm. I think you should produce it as long as you're prepared for no one to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> I will take that to the artistic director. That sounds good. Now, um, what, uh, who is uh, your favourite person you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with yet? Oh, you mean generally? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. David Gonski. Oh, you haven't, you haven't encountered... I've never David? worked with David and yep. we've had sort of parallel careers mm -hmm. and we've occasionally said to each other, gee, it would have been really good to be on a board or yeah. 
mm-hmm. on something with you. Yes. And I've always yeah. been a great admirer of David. And yeah. I've, uh, our paths have never crossed in a, an, an actual work sense. Yeah, oh, he's a wonderful man. He was chairman of NIDA when I was there and, uh, and we got to know him well and he, he right. it was just a, a wonderful man. What is the Shakespeare role that you'd love to play if your continue your, your theatre role had uh, career had continued? Uh, Puck. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Why Puck? Because uh, you put it well a minute ago. Um, he's the court jester, really. Yes. Uh, and uh, I really have valued court jesters in my time. Keith Kessel, who's actually a director of Wasso, still here, I think, was head of external relations at West Farmers when I was CEO. Yeah. And he's a great joker. Mm-hmm. And he said to me once, you know, I'm the court jester here. My job is to keep the king's feet on the ground yeah, good. <laughs> by taking the mickey. And he did it very well. Yeah. And I think you need that, actually, mm. somebody who does tell you, yeah. come on, stop uh, kidding yourself, you're not that important. <laughs> Great. If finally, Michael, you weren't in business, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd probably be making fine furniture, I think. Yeah, you good at it? Well, I'd, it's my hobby. Yeah. And I've, I've made a lot of furniture wow. over the years and I really enjoy it. It's a great escape. Mm. Uh, it's a, and there's a lot of sort of planning and maths in it, yeah. believe it or not. But with the right equipment and patience and the right timber and so on, you can actually make pretty good stuff. It sounds very meditative as well. It's meditative. Whether it's meditative and has all those attractions when it's a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if it was my profession, I'd, I'd think I would be in business. A bit more so. pressure. <laughs> Michael, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thank you. Thanks, James. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform. 